welcome everyone to episode 99, Wound Healing. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I am injured in the eyes. I need some wound healing. You're going to get my man, Dr. Sen, in here and zap my eyes back to visual acuity because I've been staring at the eclipse. I know this won't air. Don't stare at the sun. But I burnt my eyes out yesterday because I I didn't have any totality. Keeks, did you have any totality in your life? I had totality. Things were totality awesome. (laughs) <laughs> you're lucky. You're lucky. What a life you live. Oh, it was amazing. I got to take off my glasses, stare at the sun for a while or the moon in front of the sun. So good. So good. I can't wait for the next eclipse. I think I'm now going to be an umbrophile. Is that what they call them? You're an addict? An umbrophile? That's right. <laughs> an umbrophile. Worst things. Although you're going to be uh, a young old lady by the time the next one comes around, I'm betting. No, no, no. 2024, there is an eclipse, total eclipse coming up through Texas and across the central and eastern United States. Hello. Well, I'll be in the total zone then. That's sucker. right. I'm coming to visit you. No, I don't. Just, <laughs> I'm not into eclipses. I, I just sit at home in my pajamas. All right. Well, I hope many of you out there were able to see totality. And now it is time for the totality of stem cells. Let's go get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. You can not only subscribe to our newsletter there, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that you can get all the new episodes automatically downloaded to your phone. All right. We have a really great show today. We're going to discuss a great, amazing, cool discovery in the world of stem cell biology with Dr. Chandan Sen from Ohio State University. Dr. Sen reported a novel way to reprogram skin cells using an electronic wafer. I mean, wafer. It's wafer thin, placed right on the skin. Pretty cool, right? But before we get into the coolness of wafers on the skin, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen? Yeah, let's get it over with. Because I, I want to talk to this guy about these waffers, because there's a lot of <laughs> wounds that could be healed in everybody's life. Before we get to there, I want to, you know, talk like I usually talk about what Stem Cell Technologies wants to remind us all. The listeners of this podcast, we want to remind you of the first ever Connexon newsletter, Cell Therapy News. Cell Therapy News is sent to thousands of researchers worldwide. And it summarizes the latest science, policy, and industry news related to stem cell therapy, gene therapy, and tissue engineering. That's weekly. All right? That's a weekly. We give it to you every two weeks. They come weekly. So get on. It's a huge time saver for keeping current with what's happening in this exciting field. Subscribe for free at www.celltherapynews.com. Now, Kiki. Give us some science news so we can get onto these whoppers, will you? That's right. I have exciting science news. You're a developmental biologist working in the stem cell field, right? So what is the common knowledge of which sex is the default sex for mammals? Oh, of course. The default is female. 
No. <laughs> New research in the August 18th Science Magazine suggests that maybe that's not exactly true. Even though 70 years ago, a French endocrinologist, Alfred Jost, indicated that testes make testosterone and an anti-Mullerian hormone to destroy the Mullerian duct and maintain Wolfian duct tissue, there's this, this new study looking at a protein called COUP, C-O-U-P-T-F-2. It's necessary to eliminate male reproductive tissue from female mouse embryos. And so it overturns the idea that making female reproductive organs is this active process to dismantle male tissue called the Wolfian duct. So in males, the Wolfian duct develops into the parts for uh, the epididymis, vas deferens, seminal vesicles for the ejaculation of sperm. The Mullerian duct in female develops into the fallopian tubes, uterus, vagina, and both of these tissues are present in early embryos. So what they did is they, these researchers from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, tested the hypothesis, but that's not what they set out to do. They wanted actually to learn how tissues on the outside of these early duct tissues communicate with the tube's linings. They found this protein, CoopTF2, is produced in the outer layer, and Yao, Humphrey Yao, developmental biologist, suspected it was involved in talking with the lining. And so they blocked the communication in the early female mouse embryos, reproductive tissue, by removing the gene that produces the protein. Surprise, surprise, the Wolfian duct tissue remained in the female mice along with the female malarian duct tissue. So that shouldn't have happened. And so then they tested whether removing the protein changed the ovaries to produce testosterone like testes. So testosterone could feed the male tissue, allowing it to persist. This is the thinking of the researchers. However, they found that no stray testosterone was responsible for the male tissue hanging around. And so what they've determined is this protein, CoopTF2, appears to be responsible, the foreman of a biochemical wrecking crew, according to the article this came from, that demolishes the Wolfian duct tissue in females. And so if you get rid of the protein, machinery that demolishes the stuff is idle. The male duct tissue doesn't get torn down and signals that trigger this production of this protein aren't really understood yet. They've just determined that this is a main player in this developmental aspect of the process. And so they think that in people with reproductive issues, so there are men who are infertile and have cysts and other problems, and they're suggesting that researchers should maybe start looking for defects in this protein in patients with reproductive issues. So maybe it's a target. I mean, I don't think it's mutually exclusive with women being the default sex. It just, I think, shows that there's a nice mechanism by which that male machinery is destroyed. Destroyed, because yeah. Because they're both there. It's like binary, you know, bi-potential, I guess, and then it goes one way. And I like the idea. It's very poetic that women are the default <laughs> sex because, listen, if, if you don't have any input, best call is just be a woman. You know, all things being equal, you're better off being a woman. Although, <laughs> I'm willing to bet that the origins of that idea came in a male-dominated world and it was like, ah, you see, the only thing that's really important that demands instruction is maleness. A woman, you could throw it at the wall and it'll work out. 
So it's nice. It's nice. It fits in a lot of places. I love it, Kiki. Go on. Go on. It potentially answers a bunch of questions that people have had for a while. So maybe it fits into the puzzle and it will help us figure things out a bit. So moving on, you know, sometimes you scratch, you get an itch, you scratch, you scratch. What is it that makes you feel an itch that you need to scratch? I don't want to know. <laughs> I know. Well, you get, I, I've had allergies. I was outside for the, oh, the, for the eclipse this weekend. Okay. My nose, I keep itching my nose, but what is it that makes, like scratching the itch of my nose, what is it that makes my nose feel so itchy? What is it? I don't know. Again, out of science, researchers have discovered an area of the brain that itch-sensitive nerve cells in the spinal cord talk to. It's called the parabrachial nucleus. And it's a region of the brain that has been known to receive sensational information like pain and taste, but this itch function is potentially new. So this is according to co-author Yang Gang Sun from the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Shanghai. The parabrachial nucleus is just the first relay center for itch signals going into the brain. And understanding how the signals are processed by the brain could be part of the puzzle for understanding how to provide relief to people who have chronic itching or temporary relief for people who have bug bites or allergies. I mean, if you have a dog or a cat, sometimes there are these hot spots that animals get where they just can't stop scratching an itch, right? And this uncontrollable scratching can cause really serious skin damage. And if we can stop that from happening, you can potentially not have wounds that need lots of treatment. And Are we talking about dogs right now, Kiki? Are we trying to save our dogs from itching? Uh, partially, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's the mange. You don't want your dogs to get the mange. And so anyway, this network of neurons, these itch-sensitive spinal neurons, take the itch signals and they make a protein called gastrin-releasing peptide receptor. And this is very important in this itch signaling. But those neurons didn't link up directly to the parabrachial nucleus. Instead, they talk to other neurons that send messages to the parabrachial nucleus. So it's not a exactly direct route. And so in mice that were given injections of a drug that made them itchy, they showed greater activity in those neurons connecting the spinal cord to the parabrachial nucleus. And again, in another experiment, they used optogenetics to make neurons heading to the parabrachial nucleus light sensitive. And then they stopped them from sending messages using light. And when the nerve cells were blocked, mice scratched less. So we don't know if, if we have the same pathway in humans, but potentially it's nice to know there are these neurons that could be a, a target to stop the itchy scratchy. I hate itches. I do too. Because it makes it worse, right? Yeah, it does. Once you start scratching the itch, there's the release of the histamines and it gets to be worse and then there's more itchiness and yeah, it's not so good. Not so good. We need to put a stop to it. <laughs> yeah. Also, thinking of stopping, researchers are really interested in how to diagnose and stop Lyme disease. It's an illness that can be very challenging to identify. And so researchers have come up with a new testing method 
to distinguish between early Lyme disease and similar tick-borne illness. They used patient blood serum samples, and the test accurately discerned early Lyme from southern tick-associated rash illness, STARI, 98 times out of 100, which is very accurate. The comparison included uh, samples from healthy people. The method identified early Lyme disease up to 85 times out of 100. And this is way better than a commonly used test whose accuracy is 44 out of 100 times. That's less than chance. <laughs> so you'd be better <laughs> off not even taking the test. <laughs> uh, this is reported in Science Translational Medicine from August 16th. The test relies on clues found in the abundance of molecules that are involved in the body's immune response. And so this is a, this is a pretty big deal from the diagnostic perspective. We have an estimated 300,000 cases of Lyme disease nationally each year in the United States, and it can cause terrible problems, fever, chills, fatigue, aches that last for years and years and years. An accurate diagnosis can help to treat the disease at an early stage when it's easy to treat. So accurate diagnosis, though, is very difficult in the early stages. And so in this new work, the researchers measured differences in the levels of metabolites and serum samples from these Lyme and Starry patients, and then developed a fingerprint based on 261 small molecules to differentiate between the two illnesses. And in determining the accuracy using healthy patients, they were really able to distinguish all three groups, according to the researchers. And so it has promise. It's not, you know, not going to be on market right away, but this is something that will spur future studies and lead to hopefully a very accurate treatment sooner rather than later. Yeah, I hate that Lyme too. I hate itches. I hate Lyme. I hate everything you're talking about. I, I was in Maine for vacation. Family's still there and we couldn't even leave the house because my wife is so freaked out about these ticks. So mm. next story I want to hear about how we're annihilating ticks. Can we get on with that, please? <laughs> well, not annihilating ticks, but maybe annihilating those viruses in pig DNA that make transplantation difficult. <laughs> <laughs> my wife may be interested in that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Researchers out of eGenesis in Cambridge, Massachusetts, have used molecular scissors, CRISPR-Cas9, we do love the CRISPR-Cas9, to remove embedded viruses from pig DNA. They removed these porcine endogenous retroviruses, or otherwise known as PERVs, and were able to create piglets that don't pass on those viruses to transplant recipients. And this is a huge issue. We don't want these porcine endogenous retroviruses being passed into people and potentially causing disease or leading to immune responses that lead to rejection or other terrible health issues as a result of the transplant. So the researchers removed just 25 viruses that were still capable of infecting other cells. They were able to overcome several technical hurdles to make pervless pig cells that have a normal number of chromosomes and in a process similar to the one that cloned Dolly the sheep, researchers sucked DNA containing nuclei from the virus cleaned cells and injected them into pig eggs. This is somatic cell nuclear transfer and the embryos from the cloned cells were transplanted into sows to develop into piglets. 
It's not incredibly efficient as far as processes go. They place 200 to 300 embryos in each of 17 sows, and out of that, only 37 pigs were born, and 15 only are still living. And the oldest are only about four months old at this point. So this is definitely just a starting point for creating pig organs. I mean, this kind of an efficiency rate is not going to lead to pig organ farming. Although on that note, once you have these perv pigs, can they just breed with each other? Are they like a founder population? It could be can... a founder population. Yeah, you're, yeah, that could work. Absolutely. I mean, here's the next question. I, do you want some pervless pig organs in you? It's not the pervs that are keeping those organs out of me. I'll tell you that much. No, it's not. There are pig heart transplants. We are using pig organs. Right, you're right. And yeah, there again, valve replacements. I'm not Very... one who can't walk up a flight of stairs, so I might change my mind about these pervless pigs. <laughs> right, organs. give you a couple of decades and then, <laughs> and then we'll ask the question again. But by then, maybe we will have the, the farms of pervless pigs. They'll be in play. Yes, absolutely. That does it for me. What do you have on the stem cell front? I got a lot. I got a lot of stuff to talk about. First, stem cells, like everything, they are, they're everything, right? Well, stem cells may be the link between bacteria and cancer now. Uh, this is a study out of Nature. It's by Thomas Meyer and Michael Siegel. So while it's long been recognized that certain viruses can cause cancer by this oncogenic effect, they kind of insert into the genome, disrupt some genes, maybe tumor suppressors, and can cause cancer. The fact that some bacteria can also be the cause of cancer, is it's like an idea that was slower to emerge, and it's really hard to prove. Although it's pretty clear now that most cases of stomach cancer are linked to chronic infections with H. pylori. But we don't know how that link is, you know, we don't understand the mechanism of that link. So Dr. Meyer, Dr. Siegel, and his colleagues at Max Planck for an Institute for Infection Biology in Berlin, they spent a lot of years investigating this bacterium and the changes that it induces in the stomach epithelium. In particular, they were really puzzled about how malignancy could be induced in this really caustic environment where cells are constantly turning over. And because of the nature of that milieu where the cells are constantly turning over, they suspected the answer might lie in the stem cells and the crypts, the bottom of the glands that line the inside of the stomach, which continually replace the stomach cells, the lining of the stomach from the bottom up, okay? And these are the only cells that really are long-lived in the stomach. They, they're The stem cells are activated, they make up the stomach, and then all that acid and stuff cleans all the lining out. So these are the one long of cell, a good candidate for the cell of origin of these cancers. So when uh, Dr. Siegel joined the Max Planck team, he overturned the established dogma showing that where bacteria isn't linked to cancer, showing that H. pylori doesn't only infect the surface cells that are destined to die, but they also get into some of these stem cells deep in the crypts. And that the infection of these stem cells causes them to increase their division, producing more cells that lead to the characteristic thickening of the mucosa that's observed in patients that are affected by the disease. So these results, which again were published in Nature, show that the stomach glands contain two different stem cell populations. Both of these respond to Wnt, Wnt is a classic mitogen, and this response maintains stem cell turnover in the stomach. But critically, they showed that the myofibroblast cells in the connective tissue layer underneath 
these CRIPS produce another stem cell driver signal called R-spondin. And the two stem cell populations in the stomach responded differently to R-spondin, okay? And it's this signal that ended up being what was responsible for controlling the response to H. pylori. When you get infection with H. pylori, this R-spondin signal is ramped up. It silences the slowly cycling stem cell population and makes the faster cycling stem cell population into overdrive. So this is an idea, it substantiates at least this idea that chronic bacterial infections are strong promoters of cancer. And to quote Dr. Siegel, our findings show that an infectious bacterium can increase stem cell turnover. Since H. pylori causes lifelong infections, the constant increase in stem cell divisions may be enough to explain the increased risk of carcinogenesis observed. The co-author Thomas Meyer adds, Our new findings shed light on the intriguing ways through which chronic bacterial infections disturb tissue function and provide invaluable clues on how bacteria in general may increase the risk of cancer. And Kiki, you know, we've talked and circled around this idea a lot that it's, you know, gut health. There's a lot of going on in terms of not just viral infection, but all kinds of disequilibrium caused by bacterial infection, poor gut health may be the drivers of some of these maladies like cancer that everyone assumed was strictly caused by these oncogenes or teratogens. So we're kind of expanding the scope of our understanding of what causes cancer with studies like this. Yeah, it just makes me wonder, uh, you know, we have a bacterial relation to gut inflammatory disease and maybe that the long-term inflammation leads to this upregulation of these fast dividing cells and that stem cell population and eventually cancerous growth, unregulated growth, because you have more division and more opportunity for those mutations to make it through because of the bacterial stimulation. Right. Suffice to say, this overdrive idea, we're hyperstimulating, you know, we're doing too, that our environment that we're creating for ourselves is not healthy. Eat more fiber. Slow down. Slow it down. Yeah. Well, something we may want to speed up for 56 million men and women in the U.S. who are experiencing varying degrees of hair loss or baldness. Oh my gosh. Thankfully, I'm not one of them, although it's just a matter of time. Right. You know, I got a big forehead, Kiki. When I go bald, (laughs) it's not going to be pretty. Uh, more, more forehead. I think more, I want, it's gonna I want be an that head. instead of more cowbell, more forehead. More forehead. <laughs> well, despite available medications and procedures, scientists are still striving to put an end to balding and the frustrations associated with it. Well, in Nature Cell Biology, recently researchers from UCLA's Eli and Edith Broad Center of Regenerative Medicine and Stem Cell Research offered a new angle to solving hair loss problems altering metabolic pathways in the hair follicle stem cells. Everyone thinks it's like the cells they cause to die or who the heck knows what goes on, but maybe it's just they're slowing down. All right, so before we get there, let's understand how hair is lost, okay? And first, to understand that, we got to understand how it grows. All right, so the growth cycle is separated into three major components. It's easy to remember the acronym ACT, ACT. It's the growth phase, antigen, the regression phase, catagen, and a resting phase, telogen, okay? So, for instance, hair growing on our scalp will have two to three years of antigen or growth phase, and then there'll be two to three weeks of the catagen, the regressive phase, and then there'll be three months of the telogen, which is this resting phase, all right? And hair follicle stem cells are this 
unspecialized skin stem cell that lives inside these hair follicles, and they're quiescent normally, but they quickly are activated during this antigen phase. And there's a lot of factors that regulate this quiescence, but you know, ultimately, when you're losing your hair, it's because the rate of activation of these follicles is in balance with the loss of old hair or the hair growth. And, you know, steady state, we're losing an average of 100 scalp hairs every day. So if you disrupt this rhythm, you can lead to ultimate hair loss or hair thinning or other hair problems. Patchiness. You ever seen people have like weird patches of hair? It's not pretty. But they have another important quality, these follicle stem cells. They have a unique metabolic process. They metabolize glucose into a compound called pyruvate. Okay, two things can happen with pyruvate, ultimately. It can go to the mitochondria directly to make energy, or it can be converted to lactate, all right? And the, what the team's interest was, it was in this study, was to limit the entry of pyruvate into the mitochondria, okay? So if you could limit that activation of pyruvate directly into energy, the idea is you could trigger activation of hair follicle stem cells by increasing conversion to lactate. So ultimately, the way they did this is they genetically altered two mice. One was set to make it so the mice couldn't make lactate, and the other was setting lactate into overdrive. And just as you would expect, or else it wouldn't be a nature cell biology study, Hmm. mice with the activated lactate showed increased hair growth. They grew more hair, ladies and gentlemen. What the? So this proved that there was a direct correlation between lactate production and hair growth and you know, because the, the bottom line here is there's 56 million people who want to grow their hair. They made this translatable. They made two drugs that ultimately, by two different mechanisms, increase lactate production, either by directly increasing lactate production or by blocking pyruvate's entry into mitochondria. Both these result in, in increased lactate and led to hair growth in these mice. So the very next thing this group did is they applied for a patent, and they have those patents, and they're all going to be rich. And everybody's going to have beautiful, lush hair, Kiki. It's going to be a beautiful day. (laughs) Beautiful, thick hair for everyone. Because that's what we deserve. Yeah, I I find it interesting that this is not a stem cell issue, but a human behavior issue, that hair is such a behavioral signal for people, that it even though we lose hair, it's important for us to get it back or to maintain it, and that it's so important that it's a nature paper. Yeah, and there's a lot of funding, a lot there's of There's a funding. lot of funding, and it's, it, I find this socially fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah. You're right. That's kind of gives me pause. I want to talk to all these hair researchers and ask them how much money they get for this because, gosh, there's a lot of vanity in this world. People yeah. are dying. People are balding. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah. Two major problems. All right. <laughs> So we're moving on to maybe, I don't want to discount this study. It's important mechanistically. It's something that maybe has more relevance to people who are actually sick and dying out there. So you know there's these breast cancers, the triple negative. Have you ever heard of that? Triple negative. Mm -hmm. It's really high recurrence and it's hard to treat. So it's a rare set of cancers, but they're really hard to treat. Understanding which cancer you have, it's a big deal, you know, when you're diagnosed with breast cancer. And the real key to that is understanding the cell origins of your cancer, and that can have relevance to how you're going to treat it and your survival rate. So it's an important thing to look at and to understand that we got to go to the root of the problem, you know, in a healthy state. The mammary glands composed of two major cell types, basal cells 
and the luminal cells. The luminal cells secrete the water and nutrients to produce a milk. During lactation, the basal cells, through contraction, they guide the circulation of milk through the ductal tree. All right. Now, the luminal cells can be further divided into these estrogen receptor positive and negative cells. The idea, the dogma was that there's this progenitor cell that gives rise to both estrogen receptor positive and estrogen receptor negative luminal cells. And that's kind of like the developmental hierarchy. But in a new study in Cell Reports, Alexandra Van Kamelen out of Cedric Lampon's group, he's a powerhouse in Europe, and other colleagues, they generated these new transgenic mice that allowed them to specifically trace these ER-positive luminal cells and to investigate thereby the luminal cell heterogeneity and identify the origin of specifically the ER-positive luminal cells. And surprisingly, what they found is unlike the dogma, which says that there's going to be a cell that gives rise to both positive and negative, ER-positive and negative cells, they found that there's an actual progenitor that gives rise exclusively to the ER positive and thus also a ER negative progenitor. So the split between these cells actually occurs further up the developmental tree. And that's important because when you're talking about progenitor cells, you're really talking about the maybe cell of origin in many cases for cancer. You know, the cancer stem cells, this progenitor that can grow a lot without differentiating. So finding that the origin of these triple negative, ER negative cancer potentially stem cells may be set a little bit higher up the developmental tree is a really important finding, just not for understanding just the developmental hierarchy of the mammary gland, but also understanding how we can attack these uh, really hard to treat cancers and where they come from, what cells they come from and what their vulnerabilities may be. So a little snapshot there that actually may have outsized relevance in terms of cancer diagnostics and treatment. Yeah, well, we're we're talking more and more about personalized medicine and really the treatment that you get, you you want it to match the cancer that you have. And so if you can identify the specific type early, that's it's really going to be a huge help. That's the key. Early and specificity. Yeah. And then having a personalized treatment and then, you know, save some luck. This is great. More cancer, more cancer, this time in the blood. So this is, you know, they always say, drink your vitamin C, orange juice, whatever. And you're always like, oh, please, like, (laughs) take vitamin C. It's homeopathic at best. But, you know, they're wrong. I heard a thing, actually, this is a little aside, that if you spike vitamin C, IV, you can really address sepsis. So we got to get someone on to talk about that. Yeah, sepsis is a major killer. But that's a different study. Sorry, sorry. Let's get back to stem cells. Blood (laughs) cancer stem cells. Vitamin C could help kill faulty blood cancer stem cells. This is a new study in cell. It's found that vitamin C injections may halt the progression of blood cancer by encouraging these faulty stem cells in the bone marrow to die. So there's certain genetic changes that are known to reduce the ability of an enzyme called TET2 to encourage stem cells to become mature blood cells. And that's the bottom line, you know. These cells, they don't develop into the mature blood cells that do the work. They just continue to proliferate, and then you end up getting anemia because you're not getting the real business end of the blood. And in patients with a lot, you know, certain kinds of leukemia, it's been linked to the reduced activity of this TET2, right? Changes in the genetic code that reduce TET2 function are found in 10% of patients with AML, 30% of those with myodysplastic syndrome, which is a pre-leukemia type thing, and nearly 50% of all patients with chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. Okay, these are 
cancers that are highly prevalent and they increase with age. So this is a major unmet need to address these. And these cancers cause anemia, infection risk, bleeding. As the abnormal stem cells, as I alluded to, they keep dividing and they interfere with the production of other blood cells. So the researchers were studied the, the relationship between this TET2 and cytosine. This is one of the four nucleic acid letters, ATGC. And to determine the effect of the mutations that reduce TET2 function in the stem cells, they genetically aired mice so that they could switch TET2 on or off. And they find that there's naturally occurring effects uh, in TET2 mutations that are both in mouse and humans. And they found that they could reverse this when they rescued by turning back on the tattoo function. Now, here's the really important part. Previous studies had showed that vitamin 2 could activate tattoo. It could stimulate the function of tattoo and its near relatives, TET1 and TET3. And because in these cancers, it's only one of the two copies of tattoo that is unusually affected in these tattoo mutant blood diseases, the idea was that if you could hyperactivate the remaining TET2, you could compensate for the TET2 deficiency. Uh, and that's what they found. When you spike these animals with vitamin C, it does the same thing as restoring the TET2 function genetically. And this is done by promoting DNA methylation. And this high-dose vitamin C treatment induced the stem cells not just to die, but to, to mature, thereby suppressing this leukemic expansion and restoring normal distribution of blood cells in these mice. So who would have thought, you know, drink a glass of orange juice and you could address all these major forms of leukemia? Of course, it's not that simple, but I think it's a lesson that you can look towards old ideas and find new applications in these diseases that seem maybe a bit intractable. So that's a nice study, I think. Yeah, well, vitamin C has been, you know, a promise or thought to be therapeutically valuable for years and years by many leading scientists. So it's really interesting and wonderful to see it kind of panning out in this respect. For sure. It's an outsized effect. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Anecdotes leading into real world therapies eventually. Eventually. <laughs> eventually. A hundred years. I'm just going to keep adding eventually, someday, to all these <laughs> stories that we come up with. It's like, oh, this new thing someday will help us. Yes. Science is good. Science is great. All right. We have made it through another roundup, haven't we? We did it. All right. So before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to hear from you. In an effort to always improve the show, Stem Cell Technologies wants all of our listeners to take a survey that will provide us with some valuable information. Please go to stemcellpodcast.com to take the survey and enter for your chance to win a $10 Starbucks gift card. If you're like me and just drink black coffee, that's at least a few coffees. That's pretty good. Who said the show needs any changes? It's perfect. Perfect the way it is. No, we can always do better. Come on, let's improve. All right. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Dr. Chandan Sen. Dr. Sen is Professor and Vice Chair of Research, Department of Surgery at the Ohio State University Medical Center. Dr. Sen's program is interested in tissue injury and repair. His group works across small animals, large animal models, to human and patient-based research. And he's here to tell us more about his work and recent publication. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sen. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. 
Before we get really into the details of your most recent study, can you introduce yourself as a scientist and the focus of your lab's work, please? So I got a PhD in physiology and then uh, I did my molecular cell biology postdoc at the University of California at Berkeley, following which I was a staff scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and following which I moved to Ohio State because my work took me to a direction of uh, related to patient-related stuff and therefore to Ohio State, and that's pretty much my background. My interests, primarily in the area of tissue injury and repair, and I direct the Center for Regenerative Medicine and Cell-Based Therapies, so we have a lot of interest in cell as well as tissue plasticity. I just want to come right out here and say I get a lot of, you know, emails from my parents regularly that have stem cell related stuff. A lot of times it's total nonsense. And so I don't even look at it. But I was so pleased the other day when I got an email and it said a headline that seems so far out that which is just a patch heals wounds and da 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 da. And it was from my father and I'm about to shove it away. And I see, wait, nature Nano, this is a high-profile journal. Let me have a look at this. And I, my mind was blown, quite frankly. So can you please, for the lay person, this, we're, great, we're very pleased to have you on because half our audience is lay, and I think they're really drawn to this research. So with that kind of intro, can you explain to that audience what your technology is and what a great impact it stands to make? Yeah, a little bit of a background first. You know, in order to understand that adult cells may have stemness and may be converted into other cells, you know, we had to do a lot of cell biology in the laboratory. When I say we, I mean the larger scientific community. And for that purpose, cell biology, I think, was indispensable. Now, then that progressed almost naturally into direction that we were trying to convert cells in the laboratory under very defined overly simplified conditions, and then we characterized those cells, and they were singing and dancing in exactly the right way, as we would like them to sing and dance under the microscope, so on and so forth. But the moment we put them into the complexity of the body's environment, they seriously and severely underperformed. So we thought that if you take these cells, either autologous cells, meaning from your own body, or cells from other sources, and actually convert them or bring them to a fate that is desirable for therapeutic purposes, in the laboratory, the moment you have them enter the body, they are met and greeted by hundreds of other different cell types. They are facing a very complex environment. So we thought that maybe this is not a very productive approach. And as in science, you question everything, so we question this. So we then, what that led us to think is, can you really switch function of the tissue in the body without taking it away from the body? Because there is no better bioreactor than the body itself. Because if you are able to do that, you do that in the complexity of the body, you do that in the presence of the immune surveillance within the body, because if you took something out of the body, modified it outside the body, immune cells may be objecting to it, and now you're stuck with you know, different types of factors such as immune suppression that may be necessary for those cells to function. So all we did is we asked, can we switch the function of tissue in the live body in the presence of the complexities of the live body. And that's what we tried to achieve. Now, that was the goal. So how did we set about doing that? So we uh, looked at a number of techniques that other laboratories have published with respect to switching cell function in the laboratory. And generally speaking, our observation was 
that you know certain techniques may be wonderful in making a fibroblast into an endothelial cell in the petri dish. And when we make an endothelial cell, we seem to assume that, oh, well, now it's a blood vessel half made. But the question is, do you end up making functional vessels? And you cannot make functional vessels in the petri dish. We found that with the same factors, you could actually achieve endothelial cells, but there is no guarantee that they would actually make blood vessels. So we set our experiments to study fetal developmental biology. We studied how blood vessels are made during fetal development. From that, we came out with our own factors, you know, as we report in the journal, EFF. And with these factors, we were actually able to switch skin cells into functional blood vessels. And guess what? Not most well, a lot of people actually use viral vector delivery, viral gene delivery. That's a very common approach, very efficient way. But as it relates to coming to the body, now we are not talking about the lab because establishing feasibility in the lab is very different from really working within the body. Now, within the body, I would hesitate, if I could have other good options, I would hesitate to introduce a virus because of potential complications of inflammation, there could be mutagenicity, there could be genomic integration, there could be all types of complications. Now, if I had no other, then I would take you know, the best possible viral vector approach. But in this case, we looked at other physical approaches. And when we were looking at physical approaches, as you know very well, bulk electroporation or electroporation per se is very well known in gene delivery. There's nothing new about it. What we observe is that if you use bulk electroporation, so if you consider the cell as a tennis ball, so to speak, then the entire surface of the cell gets involved in the so-called electrocution process. And there are injuries, there are, in some cases, some cells will die. In other cases, some cells will have some holes in the membrane that will allow the gene to enter and the membrane will reassemble itself. Now, we find that using such bulk electroporation approaches, you could actually subdue the plastic, inherent plasticity of the cell. So what we did is we adopted a nano-electroporation approach where we use a nano-channel to open up no more than 2% of the cell surface area. So think of a tiny little window opening up in the tennis ball for a very short time. Therefore, our time is 0.1 second. And that, I think, is what caught the press's attention. Oh, well, it is so quick, it must be something magical. But really, if we did it for longer, we would have hurt the tissue. We cannot, because we have all this in a voltage, we have high resistance, we have some microcurrent, and this has to happen really fast. So once we deliver the you know, active principle, which could be a plasmid, which could be DNA, which could be RNA, and I say RNA because once you are down to RNA, your risk of genomic integration sharply goes down. So in the paper, we not only report DNA, but also RNA. And using these approaches, we can deliver the right type of genetic code, if you will, to switch the tissue function within the life body. What kind of effectiveness do you have? Do you know how many, about what percent of cells you say you're opening up 2% of the cell membrane, but what percent of the population of cells getting to turn into the stem cell type? This could only be really done rigorously under in vitro conditions because people ask that question, what is the efficiency of your gene delivery? In no case have we seen efficiency below 98%. It's a highly effective. If you take you know, 100 cells in vitro and we have published the in vitro technique you know, some time back, the efficiency of transfer using this approach is very high, and the toxicity is very, very low. And therefore, that is what motivated us to develop a 3D version of this chip that could then go into the body, which would be essentially then tissue nanotransfection. This is like, in terms of the model, if we elaborate on the model, you have these 
necrotizing tissues, right? So you induce a wound in a mouse, and then with this nano channel technology, you're introducing two kind of reprogramming events. You're in reprogramming the cells there the, within the wound into endothelial cells as well as neural cells. It's clear the endothelial cells are providing a vascular restorative function. And I guess the neural function, the neural cells are then restoring sensitivity to the tissue. Two questions. Is that indeed what the neural cell conversion is meant to do? And two, what are the cells of origin? What are cells that are would normally become what and then are converted instead into this viable tissue? Okay, let me split this in a few parts. First, we try not to say that we are converting them into endothelial cells. We try to say that we are converting them into vasculogenic cells uh, because eventually we then measure our success not by the count of endothelial cells, but by the perfusion of the tissue, which is the functional endpoint. So just to make things clear, what we did is we actually completely transected the major arterial supply to the leg, which is the femoral artery. It was just cut into two and heat cauterized. So it's not ligated that you have a little bit of blood leaking or something, completely cut into two. And then we went ahead and in the leg, we did our tissue nanotransfection. We transferred the so-called EFF cocktail. And once we did that, in seven days, we started seeing you know, new blood supply. In 14 days, we saw blood vessels not only in the local area, but also in remote areas. So then the question came up as to how is this thing propagating? Following which we found that if the tissue, and there's a very important distinction here that I want to draw attention to, that if you did the same process in an intact leg that was not ischemic, that was not hypoxic, you would see some activity of vessel, but that would all go away in seven days. They would not stay there. It would not be on a long-term basis that you would have those. They would go away. It would be a transient effect. But if you took an ischemic limb, you know, a limb where the major blood vessel has been transected, as I described, what you have is the injured skin takes our factors that are ectopically delivered, the EFF, plus adds something of its own, which we have no control on, and packages them into EV, extracellular vesicles, and then dispatches the extracellular vesicle outside the tissue. And one of the nice experiments that reviewers asked us to do, which we did, is we took out these extracellular vesicles that actually somehow contained our reprogramming factors. And we proved in vitro that when you add these vesicles into cells in vitro, you can switch them into vasculogenic cells, meaning that these extracellular vesicles had the capability to propagate reprogramming. So in this way, the extracellular vesicles actually lodged into a more distant ischemic tissue and propagated the reprogramming. So although we did the reprogramming in one place, we actually see a widespread effect of that. So that's about in the vascularization. Now let's come to the original topic that you brought up, which is the nerves. Now, by the way, when we do this, we don't not only get neural cells, we get glial cells, we get astrocytes. So, you know, we are trying to move into the concept of from stem cell to you know, tissue stemness and conversion. Because how many times in a body does a cell perform all by itself? It really needs everything else around it to cooperate with it towards a common goal. Only then do you see that endpoint achieved in a tangible and appreciable manner. Otherwise, here is a bunch of cells trying to do something, and here is the body trying to say, hey, well, this is foreign to us, and I'll not let that happen and you are now into a conflict. So about the neural cells, 
when we first saw conversion of neural cells, you know, early markers such as we call them TUJ1 is an early marker of a neural cell. And I told the lab, you know what, in seven to 10 days, all the cells will die, don't worry. And the skin will be, there'll be no, none of these cells. So they kept these animals for four or five months. And guess what? These neural cells started maturing and actually achieved electrophysiological activity that you can actually detect. So I was quite surprised by the finding. And there's another paper that we published in Nanomedicine shortly. What we did was we went into the uterus of a mother and we reprogrammed the skin of a fetus into neural. And when all these animals were born, you will see in that paper in nanomedicine, published by the same first author, Daniel Gallego-Perez, from our unit, demonstrating that all these cells that were fluorescently tagged actually aligned with the notochord of the animal. So in this case, in the fetal case, the cells actually moved and found a home. So that was quite fascinating. That was not the case that we saw in the adult, but in the adult, these cells were moving around in the tissue and were actually going through the developmental path. So if you look at one of the supplemental figures, when we took the skin and put it into what they call a transcriptomic analysis and asked the software, what are the dominating pathways through you know, standard ingenuity pathway analysis? The answer that we published was that it is a developing brain. The transcriptome had nothing to do at that point with skin anymore. So that actually got became very fascinating because you are now reprogramming, repurposing the entire tissue in its function. So why would I worry about going down the path of converting a cell and leave that cell to fight it out with the bodily tissues? So I'm not saying it's going to work every time. We have established the feasibility now, and now it's up to perfecting the technology to a point where it is taken to the next step. But we believe in the notion of induced tissue stemness and conversion. What do you think it makes the difference between the seven-day limit before the healthy tissue kind of washes away this conversion and it's a transient factor versus becoming a more permanent conversion? So you ask a very important point and a little bit of what I'm going to answer would be somewhat hypothetical, but we strongly believe in this. So at the site of injury, if you have a healthy tissue that was injured, there are some natural reparative processes in play. And not everything, I do take credit for the entire healing which the press gives us, but we did not do all of it. Mother Nature already had plans to repair the tissue. In our words, we tilted the balance in favor and actually took the forces of Mother Nature with us and that helped us sustain our outcome. In a place where you have sufficient oxygen, as you know very well, physiology has been known for a long time that you know, state of tissue oxygenation guides blood vessel development. And so you have sufficient state of oxygenation. Now you have a flurry of pro-vasculogenic activity, and that cannot sustain because there is not enough in a physiological cues to sustain that development. In our case of injury, you do have X, Y, and Z already being made by Mother Nature in the name of repairing the tissue. And here we are tilting the balance in favor of the repair process. And that is what leads to the significant impact that we are reporting. Is it, do you think that displacing, you know, in the heart, there's this kind of healing process gone awry with the myofibroblast infiltration and scar formation. Is it a similar idea where you're displacing the maybe maladaptive scar in favor of a more regenerative? tissue? A very good question. 
you know, typically, we have reported two conversions, but in the laboratory, we have achieved now more that we are about to report. And if we look at the sum total of our findings in the lab, typically, the pathway goes through some fetal markers. So it looks like we are unleashing some developmental path. To answer your question, fetal is regenerative. It is developmental in a regenerative, if you will. So it's interesting that it induces some level of tissue plasticity, yet we are not going down the induced pluripotency path because this is not the OSKM nanog intermediary, so we don't need that. The worry I personally have there is you have these IP cells and the fate of all of these IP cells are not in your hand. You can show, oh, here is the nerve and here is a you know, endothelial cell that you made, but out of how many cells, how many really converted and how many really incorporated into the live body, the fraction of IP cells that actually are incorporated into the live body are very, very few if you carefully look at it. So of millions, I have seen very few that get. So I think that the worry is what happens to the rest of it? Because the rest of it could actually pose significant threat. In trying to bypass this intermediary step, I think that's an interesting approach that perhaps reduces the risk. Where are you taking this technology? I mean, the way it was played out in the press is you've got this patch that you can put on the skin to heal a wound or to start moving that process forward. But with this knowledge that you can kickstart this developmental process in the tissue, is this the patch? Are you expecting it? We'll put it on the skin for wounds. Will you stick it in the brain? Will you stick it on the heart? Or is it going to be only something you put on the skin to reprogram the skin into something that can be harvested and transplanted? So in principle, the technology has nothing to do just with the skin. It's not unique to the skin. You could go reprogram fat. So we have devised a tool that would be mounted on a surgical head and can go inside the body and uh, can try to convert a fibrotic organ because fibroblasts lend themselves to conversion. So the interesting question to ask is, can you convert the fibroblast back into a, a myocyte? Can you convert the fibroblast back into a renal cell, you know, so on and so forth? So idea there is that, of course, the reason you start with the skin is that your risk is the least. And once you learn from it, then you are better informed to go inside the body and start reprogramming tissue within the body. Coming back to your question, critical limb ischemia. We have amputation happening every day in the clinics, every day. So those legs, before they come out of the body, not with the intent to cure, but with the intent to establish visibility, it is quite reasonable to do a small test in those legs as to how much can you really hurt, because none of these animals die. It's a very small amount of current we are talking about. So really the risks are very minimal. So through those very cautious and responsible steps, we have to gain some confidence in how it is playing out in the human. And then based on that, you then go to more high-risk challenges. It's all about the approach and the risk-reward ratio needs to be carefully adjusted. What are the main challenges? I mean, you're, right now you're in mice. How close are you? How far? And what are the challenges you see in actually translating it and applying it to humans? So we already have done human scale by doing it. We have established visibility in the SPIGs, and we have received a grant from the state of Ohio to manufacture the chips in commercial scale, which has now been enabled. So the chips are being made in a manufacturing. Initially, we were nano etching them ourselves, and we have now you know, achieved commercial manufacturing of the chips. So that part is done. We have developed big scale chips, meaning that 
uh, pig scale, roughly speaking, would be in inches, where mouse scale would be in millimeters, so to speak. We have established that, so we will do some more of pigs. But the real challenge lies in the device design for humans. Because as you know, when you go to the FDA, you need to really have appropriate design history file, you need to have the appropriate medical device design. So that is currently what, and in order to do that, you have to work with the appropriate industry partner. This is not something like professors like us really do for a living. So we partner with another segment of the entire continuum, and that's what we are currently engaged in, device design in the human following which we will seek in FDA, IDE. And of course, here there's also an element of biological because we are developing something to the effect of gene delivery. It could be regarded to be its own class, but we are hoping that we could actually go after some precedence that will make our path easier. So we are putting a lot of time now in figuring out the regulatory path. Can you alluded earlier to some ongoing studies you have in a different format? Can you share not necessarily what exactly it is, but this is, I guess, the proof of feasibility was more generic, and now you're applying it in an organ-specific way, or you're refining the existing approach in your ongoing studies? You know, like I said, the feasibility has been established in the pig. There is not really much refining to be done because, you know, when we wanted to make blood vessels and we borrowed the solutions from the literature, we failed. And at that point, uh, we had to go back to the drawing board and come up with our own cocktail. And our cocktail that we have found is working in the mouse as well as in pigs. By the way, the cocktail that we use in the pig is human gene. So to that end, we are good. I think as it relates to taking it you know, to human application and how the human tissue we will respond can only be learned through human experiments. We can keep on doing as many large animal studies as, as you want, but how the human tissue will respond, unless we so-called fail in the human, we will not know how to fix it in the human. So we are really looking forward, in my mind, the risk involved is very little, especially if we are actually testing it out on organs or extremities to be amputated and start there and then bring the confidence that, look, there's not much to hurt. And then the next step would be with the intent to rescue. But the first step would be not with the intent to rescue, but the, with the intent to prove lack of risk or minimal risk, so to speak. Speaking of that risk, does anybody, I know you're an important point of your tech is you're bypassing pluripotent state, avoiding this tumorigenicity. Has any of the reviewers or anyone given you a hard time about like off-target effects or is it there's no risk if you either target cells to neural or endothelial or vasculogenic fate outside of the focus distal, which I guess you've already shown happens, or that you could have conversion to a fate that's while not pluripotent and related to the vasculogenic or neural may still have some kind of aberrant growth potential? Is that a, something that you worry about? You know, where we have seen impact above and beyond the location that we have intervened on is vascularization. Everything else that we have so far done, which are the neural cells, which are now the beta-like cells that we have made, we have made brown adipose tissue to melt white adipose tissue around in the sub-Q fat, in all of those cases, it stays contained where we make it effective. So in that case, you know, we have started changing the dimensions of our chip because it's only in the place that you touch. And should we mess up big time, you always need to have an exit plan. You <laughs> toss that part of the skin. 
in, as we see it now. But because we are not using any infectious route, and you know viral gene delivery is happening in humans, and if I now compare the risk compared to that, it's substantially low. All we are doing is a pulse of electric current and delivery. And by the way, if we can achieve that with RNA, it is even better. I don't know how low can we go with risk, but right now it's not bothering me. So that's what I would say. I'm not very concerned right now at where we are with the risk level. I'm more worried about what exact transcription factors and genetic code will be necessary to unleash comparable effect in a human may need some tweaking because pathways are different. So, yeah. I agree with your assessment, my man. I'm just saying there's some people out there, a real hard case, but you sold them as well as you sold me. I understand what you're doing. I'm just still, and there's an aspect of this, which is you just take the chip and you touch it to the skin and this happens. And it does seem almost too good to be true or like magic. How long have you been working on this? What has your timeline been for getting to this point? Roughly four years. Wow. And much We're going to put you on uh, world peace next, buddy. It seems like you don't have much problems. <laughs> <laughs> the first year was more like, you know, convincing the engineers that this is a project worth doing because, you know, the engineers are going to enable a piece of the technology, but they really can't see what I'm trying to achieve and for all of us to be on the same page. And then very carefully, we never applied for any grants for this. We decided never to apply for a grant to do put, put it on the side. So the lab has another dozen projects that are funded uh, extramurally. So those were the main bread and butter project. This was the secret little project in the lab that was happening on the side. So that's how it, it came up. The secret project that is coming to fruition to... <laughs> no, we said that if you apply for grants, people may think this is too outlandish. And so we thought without appropriate data. And then we said, that, well, if the claims are outlandish, let us not publish anything lower than the most rigorous journal there is. So therefore, we went there. And if you look at the dates, we 16 months, there was back and forth between the journal and us. And they kept on asking for more data. And we kept on generating all that data. Thank God we did not have a grant timeline to fulfill. So we ran in the timeline of the journal. And so otherwise, I may have had to pull it there and well, push it someplace else. And that would have a much less impact because... The level of rigor that you subject this to is very important. As the moment you're making a big claim, a rigor becomes so important. Yeah, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. So the rigor is fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a very big advancement. And while it still has to be proven in humans to, for its applicability, it's very promising. And this is very exciting to hear about your work. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. I hope people get inspired by this. They adopt the technology and run with it. Together, we'll make it happen. I do hope so. All right, Kiki, that was a great show. That was off the wall, in fact. I'm going to call my pop right now and say, hey, remember that thing you sent me an email that I told you never to send me again? You were right. This guy is no joke. And all your necrotizing wounds of your future are going to be a thing of the past, pops. Thanks, God, for Dr. Seven. Right. And now you're not going to look down on your parents' emails when they send you crazy things about stem cell science, right? I am. I am still going to. You're still going to. (laughs) Awesome. All right. That was a good interview, though. I really did enjoy hearing about it from Dr. Sen. He was so just, he explained it very well. 
It's a good, good conversation. But at this point, it's time for us to close the show with one of our good old SCP rants. And this rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? It's about construction, renovation, any of that type of stuff, and specifically about the projections that that everybody makes. It's the cost, the time, the budget, all this stuff is never, ever right. And it's never wrong like, oh, we got a few thousand dollars laying around. Or, hey, what do you know? We finished early. It's always more expensive, and it's always late. You don't need a dang PhD in math to put together a budget. And if it's always late, why don't you just build in another three or four months? <laughs> three or, or four like months. <laughs> thousands and thousands of dollars. For goodness sake, I hate renovations. And even when I call them out, I'm like, okay, yeah, you say April, I guess that means June, right? They're like, ha ha ha. And then it ends up being August. I mean, what the heck, Kiki? At least it's done. Your office renovations, all this stuff, at least it's done before the school year really kicked into gear for you guys over there, maybe. No, but still, no, you're letting him off the hook. Okay. Okay. I mean, you've, I know you've been running around with your laptop trying to find a quiet place to record this show for the last several months. Yes. We've had audio issues. We've had all sorts of trouble. And I'm like, I've always been like, Dalen, when are you going to have your office back? When do you get yeah. to sit down in that comfortable chair again? It's affecting the quality of the show, this construction. It could have been so much better. It is true, though. I mean, there's, there is something to be said for staying on schedule. And why is it construction specifically that is plagued by this problem? I think it's, it's all mobbed up. I think it's just part of it. <laughs> uh, I hate to say it. That's a terrible cliche. But I'm not talking mafia, like cultural mafia. I just mean it's like an inside job. All construction workers are all it's like price fixing. They're like, hey, wait, you gave a quote that was on price and on time, you're out of the union. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I know for the eclipse this weekend, the projections were that traffic was going to be terrible coming home from the eclipse. You know what? Was it? It was. <laughs> it was awful. So, sometimes the projections are right, but they're still bad. <laughs> exactly. When they call when they call for rain, it always rains. And when they call for sun, it rains. It still rains. Yeah, welcome to Oregon. <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm glad your renovations are done in yeah, that office, it. right? You're it through looks it. great. I can't lie. It looks Did you have good. house renovations or other renovations going yeah, on I'm too? Always renovating. That was last Did, year. Oh, I like to yeah. renovate something every year. Yeah, what am I, I going like, to do next? I feel like you're constantly, there's just things being rebuilt around you. Never satisfied, Keith. Right? Never satisfied. What's going on over there? I'm just going to stay. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stay out Done of building. it. Yeah. Stay, stick with what you got gonna, is what I learned. That's what I'm going to try to do. fine the way it is. It's fine. It's just fine. <laughs> All right, you, everybody out there, what do you think about projections for construction and other things? Do you like ranting about it? If not, you can send us your own ideas. Send us rant ideas at Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. You can also email info at stemcellpodcast.com. And don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com. Dalen, this concludes episode 99 of the Stem Cell Podcast. That's big. Next time. I know it's big. Next time. It's our century. The 100th episode of 
the Stem Cell Podcast, we are going to feature a lengthy interview with Kevin McCormick from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And we're going to hear all about CIRM's efforts to translate stem cell therapies and kind of what, what's been going on and where they're going. You know, it's like we're, we're looking at our 100th episode. We're looking at what they're doing, too. It's been a decade of CIRM. What's coming next? Very nice symmetry. I like that. Yeah, I think it's going to work out very nicely. I can't wait for it, and I'm looking forward to it. I hope everyone out there is also. Thanks, Dalen. Thank you, Kiki. <laughs>